Coronavirus NZ, a stuff podcast. So, bars open from today, eh? You going to head off to the pub after work for a beer? Hmm, nah, not so much of a bar fly myself. What about you? Well, I was thinking about it, and then I heard Ashley Bloomfield say at the one o'clock press conference that now was not the time to be showing off any new dance moves you've been practicing over lockdown. Killjoy. Are you serious? Did he actually say that? Mm-hmm. What have we become? Anyway, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Thursday the 21st of May. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. Twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we cover the main headlines and some of the quirk too, and then focus on one particular issue. So, this is a bit awkward, but uh, Eugene, did you actually ever send that invitation to Dr. Ashley Bloomfield to come on our show? Yeah, of course. Why? It's, it's just, I've seen him, you know, around the traps, knocking about on all sorts of shows, tally, radio, a podcast. He's a popular guy. I heard him on an interview on the radio in the dark of dawn yesterday. He was even on a rugby show on Sky Sport. So I'll just ask again, did you actually hit send on that email? Yeah, yeah, yeah of course I did. But here it is. April 14, I first sent it and I followed it up since then. A little boy waits. You got a good point, though. We must be the only journalist in the country he hasn't spoken to. Did we do something wrong? Would it help if we bought one of those Ashley Bloomfield T-shirts? Two T-shirts. Great idea. I'll place the order right now. Later on the show, Professor Simon Kingham says coronavirus has already changed the way we move around and there's more change to come. He talks about the future of transport and his role in advising the British government on its border and quarantine plans. But first, here's what's happening. So the signs are getting more and more positive, aren't they? Fourth straight day of no new cases. Only one person in hospital now, and they're not in intensive care either. And the last recorded death was on May 6. That's all good information, isn't it, for the Cabinet to be seeing on Monday when they review how Level 2 is playing out. So you know how the mail always gets through? Well, not quite. It turns out that 29 countries have stopped sending mail to New Zealand altogether because there's no practicable way of getting it here at the moment. And with air freight drastically reduced because there are hardly any planes flying, some countries have resorted to using sea freight for mail, which can take 60 days to get here. Worldwide, the number of coronavirus cases jumped 106,000 in the past 24 hours. That's a new record. The total number of cases is approaching 5 million. And European health chiefs are warning of a second wave for the continent, with one saying, the question is when and how big. Back down under, meanwhile, job cuts keep going up. Construction company Fletcher's has proposed laying off 1,000 people in New Zealand and another 500 in Australia. And Air New Zealand has told 1,300 cabin crew their jobs are to go, according to the union Air 2. So in lockdown, white-collar workers got used to track pants and Zoom calls, but it was quite a different story for blue-collar workers. National correspondent Steve Kilgallen was part of a reporting team who looked at this tale of two lockdowns. Hi, Steve. Morning, chaps. How are we? Good. Pretty good. Are you in your track pants? Uh, I actually am in track pants today. But I've spent most of the week at a court case and had to wear a suit, so um, I'm excusing myself for wearing track pants. Were you the defendant? (laughs) My partner said that as well. She thought she was being as funny as you were. 
anyway, it does seem that the country was divided in two. Yeah, uh, stuff we've got a really good um, data journalist called Andy Fires who basically spends his days looking at big sets of numbers and seeing where the stories lie. And I don't 100% understand how he does it or how it works, but he, he produced a big chunk of data that showed the top 20% of the population in terms of income were far less mobile than the bottom 20% in terms of income. Although the two the two graphs sort of tracked each other, there's the two zigzag lines, but there was a big gap between them. And so we set out to try and find out why there was that disparity. And what was the answer? Well, what we concluded was that the, the, the bottom 20%, as it were, didn't have a choice. The top 20%, like you say, could sit at home on their Zoom calls and uh, not go anywhere. But the, the people in poor associate economic areas didn't have that option. They didn't weren't in jobs that offered that flexibility. They had to go out to work. So we figured the movement patterns were principally people going to work. With also we thought there was maybe some variables around bigger families meaning more shopping trips and overcrowding maybe mean people leaving the house more often. But definitely the case studies we found and the people we spoke to pointed very strongly to that. Bottom point is twenty percent just not having a choice. Maybe this is a naive question, but what's the problem? People go to work, they've still got jobs, they're going to and from work. Why why is that a big deal? So here's the thing about disasters, and we count this as a disaster, they don't treat us all equally. So there was a heat wave in Chicago and then mid 90s and you you know everybody was living in the same temperature but older black men in poor areas were more likely to die because they were less likely to leave the house or more likely to be socially disconnected or less likely to have air conditioning so it's been proven time and again that disasters don't treat us equally and the same could be true of this one if we'd had community transmission then we could have expected for it to hit these people much much more strongly than the the middle and upper classes who could stay at home and isolate and stay away from it. So your frontline workers, your supermarket workers, your rubbish collectors, your street cleaners were, were out there at risk. And if we'd had community transmission, it would have affected them so much more than it did the rich people. Yeah, well, you only need to look abroad where this really did literally play out, that it became a far more dangerous thing to be blue collar than than to be white collar. There's a horrible figure. I just, just checked the latest total. New York transport workers, 123 of them have died. And that's out of almost all of them are city bus and subway workers. And so that's a workforce of about 50,000 people, 123 dead. And the statistics from overseas also show that this cleaves along racial lines. So if you're uh, an ethnic minority in the UK or the US, you are much more likely to die of coronavirus. And I was talking to Paul Spoonley from Massey University, who's a specialist in population, and he said his big fear before this began was it would really disproportionately hit our Maori and Pacifica population. And how pleased he was that it hadn't, and that, that you know, one of the massive positives of, of the way this country's dealt with it is that we didn't see that effect happen. Because that's exactly what happened with the 1918 pandemic, didn't it, with the flu. It hit the Maori population disproportionately hard. And I guess coming into this pandemic, the risks were heightened for Māori and Pacific communities where they don't do well as well on other health stats. So make them vulnerable because of diabetes, because of all those other risk factors that there are. Yeah, comorbidities, closer living groups, frontline work, increased mobility, all the tick boxes were there for certain demographics to be really hit mm. if it had gone the other way. So for this piece, Steve, you talked to uh, a builder, that's right? Yeah, um, a guy called Kiko Hibbs, so I've known for years um 
Keiko was, uh, was working on a residential development in Remuera and he very quickly realised that work was going to stop at level four and he wasn't going to have an income. Uh, he's got a three-year-old daughter and his wife's employment was also looking wobbly at that point. So he got a job on the night shift restocking shelves at the Victoria Park New World in central Auckland. Um, so he was a really good illustration because he lives in Manurewa, so he was making a 32k commute um, and he did that for six weeks. Steve, your, your colleague Carmen Padahi tracked down the most famous cleaner in the country, Rose Kavapalu, who she, you know, she's a classic example, isn't she? She leaves home at 7.30, goes from Mangadi, goes to a job in Mount Eden where she cleans and then goes to the Otahu police station. And, and it was in that role that she got singled out by the Prime Minister for praise, which was a bit of a surprise to her. Yeah, I thought she did really well tracking her down. And I guess the point there is multiple jobs, multiple risk factors. And just a reminder of the point I was making at the start of a conversation that those of us have had the opportunity to stay home and stay safe should a, feel really grateful and um, I guess B, not, not, you know, not feel smug about it, you know, just be aware of the people who've had a much tougher time of it during this thing, but also a much tougher time generally. Hey, before you go, Steve, we have to commend you for one of the cutest tweets around yesterday about your three-year-old son going off for a haircut to tame his 80s footballer-style mullet. How did it go? Surprisingly well, my oldest boy is now 10. It took about six visits to the barber shop before he actually consented to a pair of scissors being laid upon his head. But um, Alistair was very good. First time, huge success. And his twin sister was so impressed that she went straight back over and had a haircut as well. So he doesn't look like Kevin Keegan anymore, but he looks quite old now. All parents will know this feeling. The first time you get your kid's haircut, they suddenly age by about five years. But um, his behaviour hasn't improved by five years, unfortunately. And it's good to see you supporting the local hairdressing businesses <laughs> as well. Barbers are killing it right now, mate. <laughs> Steve Kilgallen, thank you for joining us. Cheers. All sorts of exciting firsts yesterday. I was in a cafe. I was meeting with Eugene Bingham. We talked without the video lag. But before all that happened, I got there a bit before him. And... Uh, I watched, <laughs> I watched Eugene get quite exercised at his attempts to log in using the new COVID, NZ COVID tracer. By the time he sat down and started laying into his dates gone, he was um, quite exercised. Yeah, I, I was a bit underwhelmed. I think I'd got a bit excited in the morning because I downloaded it and updated my details and thought, here we go, I can use it. And that particular cafe didn't have the right QR code. I got an error message saying, invalid QR code. This code doesn't match the NZ COVID tracer format. So it was a bit disappointing, to be honest. But, you know, it is getting up to speed. 236,000 registrations for the app at midday Thursday. 6,500 QR codes generated by businesses. So it's slowly going to build up. Uh, well, I, I'm just going to quickly comment on the aesthetics you got to like the yellow. It's got the stripes. Um, and there's the bit at the bottom that says, remember, wash your hands. I mean, what, what more do you want? Yeah, it seems to me that at the moment, I mean, there are more features coming out there, but at the moment, it's an exercise for the ministry to hoover up everyone's contact details. Because when you register, you provide them with your name, you know, your phone number and all sorts of things like that. And there's various layers that you can provide or decide not to. But by registering, you give them some details that their contact tracing team can then use. And remember in that Aishaviral report, one of the issues that was raised was they couldn't get hold of people because they didn't know where they were. Details were out of date. And so that, I think at the moment, is probably 
in terms of the public health outcome, the most useful thing about the app. It's not really very useful and fun to use as an app from a user perspective at the moment. You can't even play Candy Crush on it, for God's sake. But also, I would have thought that they'd have built something in that you could, for instance, manually input where you'd been so that you can store in one place all of your details that day because you can't manually input, for instance, that you met Joe Bloggs on the walk on your walk up to the dairy. There's nowhere to do that on the app. Yeah, it's a little bit underwhelming at the moment, but you know, more is coming. Yeah, I was thinking we could do with a QR code for my Sunday morning a run jamboree. So when I catch up with Steve Kilgallen and he's infectious, I can um, mm. keep track of that. Uh, look, you're not the only person slightly underwhelmed. The Science Media Centre put out um, some commentary from various scientists and experts and people qualified to comment on it. And this one was from Professor Dave Parry, Head of Department of Computer Science at AUT. It's pretty damning, really. He says, the biggest issue with this app is that it doesn't really bring much benefit to the person using it. It doesn't replace the check-in systems to businesses or even allow you to automatically send your history to the contact tracing team, although this is promised. Um, he says... A little bit like you, I found the interface to set it up rather clunky, and I suspect a lot of people give up. It also asks for a lot of information, although that is voluntary, that it, that it doesn't really need. And he makes this point, people are used to very easy-to-use apps, and for something designed to be used by the whole population, this feels like a government app. Not impossible to use, but not delightful either. So yeah, I'd, I'm not very delighted either. But who knows, it might get better, and um, also at the moment... As far as I can tell, there are no cases being traced, so we've still got a bit of time to get it right. Andrew Chen, who's at Auckland University and is a tech specialist who's been regularly commenting on the development of these apps and and talking about what we need and so on, he says, uh, you know, the contact tracing support app is probably safe to use. We can argue about the efficacy, but I've studied the available docs and the app and the privacy impacts are very limited. So... And that's good news for the reasonably substantial cohort of people in New Zealand, but certainly around the world, who have had very dark comments about an app being a way for the government to, you know, take over your life and create the big Skynet that's going to lead to the end of the world. So if they're getting the privacy right, that's that's good. That's right. And it's it's just not going to cause a craze like, what was that? What was that app? Dragon Ball Z? No, no. What is it? Um, this is embarrassing. Uh, you know, where, pe- where people were running around. Pokemon. Pokemon Go. Yeah, but it's just not going to cause a craze like Pokemon Go, is it? I suspect not. We mentioned this the other day, didn't we, about the discussion of whether we should have an extra public holiday. Yes, I believe I cheered. You did get rather carried away. We should say this is just an idea at the moment, and certainly it doesn't look like it's got 100% support by any stretch. There's people pushing back from a business point of view, which was something that we talked about when it was first raised. And Winston Peters, for instance, has come out and said that New Zealand First is not in favour of it. So it's not locked and loaded, but people are getting a little bit excited and exercised, aren't they? And what's the idea of it again? Why why do we need public holidays? To support local tourism. Ah, I see. Mm. So instead, you don't go gardening on those days, you go and do some touristing. Yeah, I think that's the idea. And people have talked about, at last we can have Matariki Day, maybe. Maybe Ed Hillary Day on his birthday. I like that. Yeah. But then again, people have been talking about those kind of days for ages. So why don't we just call it what it is? We can have a coronavirus day. Yeah. And that way you can put it in any day because all it needs to be really is between Queen's Birthday weekend in June coming up and Labor weekend in October. To end the horror of those five months without a free day. What about we have a Queen's birthday? Why not Eugene's birthday? Oh, Jane's birthday. We could do, except that's, that's in January, so it doesn't work. 
Anyway, so Stuff Travel Writer, Brooke Saban, has been thinking about this on our behalf. Not so much the public holidays, but what you should do with them. And in fact, let's not wait for the public holidays. We need to be going on holidays and rebuilding New Zealand's tourism industry. So here are Brooke's suggestions. Hi guys, here are three unusual but really good things to do and you can do them over the next couple of weeks. Number one, go like Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway and head out to your own little island in the Marlborough Sounds. Now this is called Atapawa Island and wait, here is the best bit. It will only cost you $35. So for the same price as you know, you can get a coffee and smashed avocado in Auckland or a bucket of the Colonel's finest herbs and spices, you can be heading to an historic homestead. It dates back to a whaling house and you'll be overlooking the Tory Channel with beaches and a whole island to explore. You can watch the ferries go past. I was there just a couple of months ago and it was it was just magic. So this is how it works. This is the maths. You need to take 10 friends, which is good because, you know, that's our limit under alert level two. And then it works out at $350 a night for the lot of you. So in other words, $35. So that is a great deal. Next up, if you need some adrenaline, it's going pretty cheap these days. There are some huge deals to get people out and about traveling for Queen's birthday. We're talking $10 zip lines in Kowaro, and they're normally 50 bucks, or $88 bungees in Auckland, Topor, and Queenstown. Now, those are normally $205. And speaking of good deals, the Chateau Tongarido is also selling rooms for $70 a night at the moment. And number three, something really left field, a luxury underground cave. Now, this is called Underhill. You'll find it in the Waikato. It it's kind of almost reminds me of a little luxury hobbit hole. You've got no power. You've got an ultra comfy bed. There's candles everywhere. It's got a coal fire stove. I went there um, a couple of years ago. Absolutely love it. Would recommend it to anyone. And, you know, I'm heading to a treehouse this weekend. And I think that's one of the great things about only having New Zealand to explore is that we are finding out stuff we never knew existed. This treehouse is only 15 minutes away from where I live and I didn't even know it was a thing until last week. So there we have it. We've got a cave, we've got $10 zip lines, and we've got an island for 35 bucks a night. Fantastic stuff, Brooke. Thank you so much. And here was I thinking that sofa cushion forts were the only cheap and local option available in post-corona New Zealand. Email inbox. What do you got, Adam? A really nice email from someone called Eni Tuimisalo, which Google tells me is possibly Finnish, and I hope I pronounced it okay. Eni writes, thank you for a great podcast. I've been listening since the beginning of lockdown. Fantastic. That's good news. Now, she's talking about Heather Hendrickson's interview where we talked about um, viral sequences getting into bats and, and other animals and so on. And she says, about Heather's interview, what was the other animal species beside bats? It sounded almost like penguins, but not. Pingling? Penglin? Either it's something I've never heard of, which is totally possible, or she has similar trouble with the word penguin as Benedict Cumberbatch. If you haven't seen the video of him pronouncing penguin, I highly recommend it. Okay, well, this is interesting. There's almost an investigation here. I'm going to investigate by googling Benedict Cumberbatch and penguins. And is penguins crested penguins parent penguin heading home? So why are these woodlands so attractive to penguins? I just love that he was 
doing this documentary about penguins, surrounded by penguin experts, and no one said, hey, Benedict, you're not saying it right. So anyway, what was the animal that we were talking about? It wasn't pinglings or penguins or penguins, was it? Let's say this very clearly. It was pangolin. Pangolin. Which, if I'm honest, I'd never heard of them before coronavirus. Yeah, they're really unusual things. I think they're mammals, but they're almost like an armadillo. Yeah. You know, they've got this sort of armour plating on them, kind of cool. And the, and the idea is that some of the um, viral material in coronavirus looks like it is pangolin-y in the way that some of the other stuff is batty. But in fact, there's not total agreement about this. No, people are still trying to get to the bottom of how, what was the role of the pangolin in its jumping into the human species. But yeah, pangolin, there you go. Right. Plague playlist. Small confession here. Didn't have anything super duper fresh for the plague playlist today, but his Kifness, the South African dude who does these rather nice parodies, he had quite a bit of a back catalogue. So I went and looked, and I know I'll, I'll play it in a minute, but I feel it may be drifting out of currency. Will this lockdown ever end? I've got itchy feet again. Cabin fever got me creeping out the house. Yeah, these songs are getting a little bit out of date, aren't they? Because we're not in lockdown anymore. Bring us some level two songs. Has anyone done one of those? Who? You, you asking me or you asking the great listening public? Great listening public. Well, if you've got one yourself, Adam, where is it? Let's see what I can rustle up. While New Zealand shut its borders to the rest of the planet and jumped into a major lockdown, the British government moved against the virus slowly and inconsistently. Now New Zealand is returning to a semi-normal life, but the virus is still raging in the UK. Now Britain is looking at border closures and quarantines and self-isolation. And one of the people the Brits called for advice about setting all that up was Dr Simon Kingham. Dr Kingham is the Chief Science Advisor to New Zealand's Ministry of Transport and also a Professor of Geography at the University of Canterbury, and he's with us now. Good morning. Good morning. So just briefly, Simon, when there's not a global pandemic on, what does the Chief Science Advisor to the Ministry do? The official um, job description talks about ensuring that evidence that goes to ministers for their decision making is, or the the advice that goes to ministers is evidence-based. So there are a series of science advisors to different ministries. I think most of us are seconded from academic jobs, some aren't, but the idea is that we are ensuring that advice is is based on, on evidence. So obviously evidence was important in the early stages of dealing with this pandemic. So since January, what was your role in the development of the quarantine and isolation protocols? In terms of transport, the the advice I've been involved with has, has come a bit later because it, to some extent the quarantine is is still driven by health, really. Right. Um, the practicalities are, are over to the Ministry of Transport, but we lean a lot on this on 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 the health Ministry of Health. We say because it's it's really about the transmission of disease, the disease moving between people. So a lot of it was on Ministry of Health advice. Early on, some experts were saying that border closures weren't a particularly effective way to manage a global pandemic. Yeah. Do you have any idea of why that was their thinking? I'm not sure. I suspect early on, people didn't quite realise the magnitude and the scale of this. And certainly in this country, one day we were talking about it and the next day we were in lockdown almost. So it happened very rapidly. I mean, you can look back on similar pandemics. You look at Ebola and and SARS and things, and they didn't happen in the same speed. They didn't seem to happen in the same uh, magnitude. So I think we were just caught out. Because of course, it it turned out that in a place like New Zealand, especially closing borders down really does work. Absolutely. Was there... 
Was there any science that New Zealand relied on to go its own way and say, actually, we think it is a good thing to do? We probably benefited from it hitting us later so we could see what was happening. I think with, so hindsight, I think really helped, you know, it's it obviously started in China and by the time Europe and North America had realized what was happening to some extent, border closures would have helped, but it, the gate had slammed shut a wee bit. Um, whereas for us, we had time and I mean, there's now evidence. I just read recently some research showing that border closures help most at the start and they help actually at the end as well. But perhaps during the middle, it's almost like it's too late to, to get that maximum impact of the border closure. It feels like the UK might have missed the boat somewhat. They've got uh, very high rates of, of infection and it's still climbing within the country. That's right. And, and obviously they, they certainly, whether they officially were going for the herd um, immunity approach or whether they just talked about it, they, they moved slowly on this one. I think the other thing is it's, it's interesting. I, so I, I have now a regular conversation with my equivalent in the UK and he was asking me about um, the border and the quarantine in particular, because they have now shut the borders to some extent. They've still had more people coming in. The EU is also interesting because really the EU, you can't close the borders within the EU because there are no borders in a way. Mm. And, and actually the conversation he was asking more was about quarantining. So the Brits asked us for help with ideas on how to manage the border. Did you contact any countries to ask them for help? So it's not, they didn't directly ask. What it, what it is is last year I met the British chief scientist for the Department of Transport there. And we shared notes about the role and the sort of things that were happening. And now we speak every couple of weeks. We just catch up with each other just to share thoughts, um, get each other's ideas. So we've talked about social distancing on public transport. We've talked about initiatives to encourage walking and cycling. We've talked about things like things you can put on surfaces on buses to stop coronavirus um, landing and, and growing and that sort of thing, surviving. So we just compare notes generally and I feed stuff back to the ministry here and he goes back to the people in the UK. So it is very much a two-way conversation. At the moment, I think because we seem to be doing things pretty well, he's asking me about, look, what are you doing about this? But I'm equally asking him about things that they're doing as well. In the context of quarantine, he was interested in the idea of the self-quarantining versus basically forced quarantine, which is what we're doing now. So we put people in hotels and we literally almost don't let them out to the room. And in the UK, where they are doing quarantining, it's self-quarantine. But I think we know, and my discussion with him was that we, know, we just know it didn't work. Um, we know that people, when it first happened here, we know that there were cases of backpackers being intercepted in pubs in Queenstown and these sort of anecdotal evidence. Mm. But I think as when even quarantining at home, you're interacting with, it's very difficult to self-quarantine at home and not have any contact with anyone else in that house. And as soon as you have that connection and that contact with someone in your house and they go to the supermarket, if you've got it, it's out. Whereas in the hotels, they're being really very strict about it. I think literally they're almost policing the corridors to check you're not coming out. And therefore my comments to him were that actually self-quarantining just, just can't work. And even if you ask people, because a question he got asked in the British Parliament Select Committee was how many people are abusing this. And the reality is we don't know because I don't know if people would give an honest answer. Mm. If I said to you and you had been self-quarantining, have you gone out? You'd probably feel a little bit anxious about possibly saying yes. How much interaction do you have with people in the house and do they then go out? Because if that's happening and you've got coronavirus, then it's out in the community again. Can we, can we perhaps have a look at the, the future? And it's been said that coronavirus presents the greatest challenge to the dominance of the car in decades. Do you agree? And, and what does that mean for New Zealand? 
I don't know if it threatens the dominance of the car. I think it, what, what coronavirus is doing at the moment is, is creating some opportunities to change the way we do things for the better. So, for instance, we know we've, you know, like, like the rest of the world, we have greenhouse gas emission um, issues, so climate change. And we know we've got to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. We know that, like many countries in the world, we have a bad problem of obesity. And transport is a component of that. Um, in terms of air travel, obviously, um, greenhouse gas emissions and, and air travel are very, you know, there's, there's an issue there. So I don't know if it's the threat, but it certainly creates a, a big opportunity. There's evidence that quite a lot of people walked and cycled who did not before just around their communities for recreation, just to get out with their families. And the thinking is if we can encourage those temporary behaviors to become more permanent, then that's a good outcome. We know in terms of self-isolation that walking and cycling is actually very good. It's probably easier to social distance walking and cycling than other modes. And so there are initiatives at the moment to try and encourage that by perhaps widening some of the footpaths and the cycleways to, to make it easier. Public transport is going to have some issues the next few months while we um, still are asked to socially distance because you, the capacity on public transport is significantly reduced. Mm. And so bearing that in mind, getting more people walking and cycling, perhaps getting more people to work at home, which they've done under lockdown, is a good outcome as well. So I think it creates some really exciting opportunities. And it's not asking everybody to change. It's not saying everybody must work at home, everybody must walk and cycle. It's saying for some of you, this might be an easier option than it was before and trying to encourage that. I was going to say, I, I, I normally catch the bus to work. Uh, I'm working from home at the moment. But to be honest, this has got me sort of thinking about, uh, do I really want to be on back on a crowded bus ever again? Not just about coronavirus, but about other viruses and colds and flus and so on. So that's got into my thinking. What assurances could you give me if that's that it's going to be okay? Absolutely. I, I don't think anybody can give any assurances because it is making people feel slightly anxious about being in confined spaces with people they don't know. And that's an absolutely normal reaction. I guess once coronavirus is, we have crushed the curve and, and we don't have cases. And we also perhaps at some point in the future, we'll have a vaccine and treatment. We hope that won't be the issue, but you're right. It makes people start thinking about other illnesses, etc. The question then is, how do you in your situation travel to work or are you able to work at home? If those people who can just work one or two days a week at home, that can solve some of the challenges we've got with congestion and greenhouse gas emissions and things. If it's an option for people like you to walk or cycle or possibly get an e-bike, because we know that for some people walking and cycling isn't an option because their journey is too far. Mm. We have all been put in the situation where suddenly we're thinking about different ways of moving around and we've seen the examples, as you say, of people just walking and cycling around their own communities. Is there work going on to convert that that mind shift into a, a, an ongoing change? Yes, there is. So the, the Ministry of Transport are doing some work to look at how they can encourage some of those behaviour changes. So there's going to be, you know, I think employers will be encouraged to think about working from home. New Zealand Transport Agency have recently uh, funded some projects to increase the width of footpaths and put some temporary cycleways in. And one of the good things about doing temporary stuff is that pe you could see how it goes. And if it really doesn't mm. work or it's not attracting people, you can take it out. And if it does work and people like using it, you can then look at perhaps making it permanent in the future. Yeah, it seems that coronavirus is changing the way that we think about transport in a way that perhaps, you know, for years we've had the, the climate change issue over us, which was bringing about slow change, but this might bring about quick change. 
Absolutely. And I think, it, you know, the, the, the analogy often down here in Christchurch is that the earthquake made us rethink about how we wanted our city to look. And I think coronavirus can perhaps have the same impact on some transport behaviours and the way people travel because it is dramatic. It's affected our lives, all of us. And perhaps we can take advantage of the behavior changes we've done to maybe have better outcomes in the future. And, and it makes it quite exciting. I think it's quite exciting opportunity. You're not asking everybody to change um, because clearly there are some people who can't. But if just a few people can change their behavior, actually, you can have significant impact on climate change, well-being, social community. I think, I don't know if you've noticed, but in my community, I've, I've seen more people walking and cycling and it kind of livens the community. You see people, you say hello to them. The streets seem busy. There seems to be more kids out. And these are all really positive outcomes. Everyone was predicting that some of the statistics for mental health would be really negative in the lockdown. And I think in some areas there are some negatives, but also I've read recently that, that some of them are not as bad as predicted. And actually, I think this idea of people getting to know their neighbours and wandering around their community is actually and has some real benefits as well as some of the potential risks we, we thought might happen. Perhaps we could make the teddy bear hunts a permanent feature of, of New Zealand street life. Absolutely. Well, also there's people who put hopscotch things out on pavements and there's all sorts of things that are engaging kids in their local community. And, and we know that if people do things locally, that's good for a whole load of things. It's good for local community. It's good for well-being. It's good for pollution and climate change and all these things. So, yeah, maybe make the, you're right, the annual or even the daily teddy bear hunt. <laughs> Dr. Simon Kingham, thank you very much for joining us. No problem. Thank you very much. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Thursday the 21st of May. That's the end of the first week of bi-weekliness. I'm Adam Dudding. Here's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Steve Kilgallen, Brooke Sabin, Simon Kingham, Alex Liu, Catherine George, Patrick Crudson and Carol Hirschfeld. Bi-weekliness or semi-weekly? No one knows. It's one of the mysteries of language. Uh, we need a science explainer on that. You can find us on all the podcast platforms and you can get in touch with us by email, viruspod at stuff.co.nz. If you want to support Stuff's journalism by making a financial contribution, you can go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz, or even just make a bid for the whole company if you're feeling generous. Thanks for catching up with us. We'll be back on Tuesday. Ajo. Ah,